Stage, episode 10, Bob and the World Below Asbim. So today I'm interviewing Bob about his campaign setting. Um, so let's get into it. Um, first, you want to tell us a bit about uh, who you are outside of D&D um, and you know, where you live, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a 30-year-old guy out in Raleigh, North Carolina, or technically Durham, right next door. We uh, mm-hmm. moved out here. My wife and I are both from middle of Wisconsin. We lived in Wisconsin for 25 years, our whole lives. And after getting married, moved out here. Of course, that's when COVID hit and found ourselves clammed up inside. Recently, have moved over to Durham to buy a house. We had a kid a couple months ago. And uh, yeah, just having a good time. Okay, great, great. I actually, I went to college in uh, Beloit, which is, you know, fairly Wisconsin. Sure, yeah, Wisconsin. yeah. I went to college in Kenosha area, which has been in the news more recently, but um just a little bit farther north of Chicago. Okay, cool. How old is your baby? Two months. Nine weeks today. All right, nice. My my son just turned two, so you forget probably. Yeah, this, yeah. This age, I mean, like that's what everybody kind of says is that you um you kind of forget what it's what exactly it's like. I mean, you remember somewhat, but like you know, just uh. We're up every couple of hours. and You're so sleep deprived. Like, how, how could you remember it? I'll tell you what. I was telling my telling one of our therapists the other day that uh, my doctor recommended we get five hours of consecutive sleep is like the magic number. And she goes, what about like eight hours? I'm like, dude, that is not reasonable at all. Like, she doesn't mm-hmm. have kids. She doesn't know. Eight yeah. is one of those things that just is not happening. So like five is the gold standard is like a good, a good way to go. Yeah, well, me and my wife did. Um, he was still doing night feeding. Um, was we split it up? So like, I got the first half of the night, and she got the second half of the night. That's what we're doing. Yeah. So like, I yeah. kind of take over when I get done with work at about five o'clock, and I kind of go all the way to about one a.m. Mm-hmm. She goes to bed at like eight or whatever, and then she's up at midnight. He's up at midnight. We kind of do like a a night feed, and then starting at like one or two, whatever. And then like, she kind of takes over. And um, he's pretty good. I mean, he'll sleep for three, four hours in a row. The trouble is right now, he won't sleep on his own, like in a bassinet or in a, a, a swaddle or anything like that. He's got to be snuggling with somebody. Yep, that's very typical. Yeah, the trouble is, though, like, you know, he, he, there's anxiety about, like, co-sleeping and, like, blankets yeah, yeah. or something getting over his face or whatever. So it's like we're not sleeping with any blankets on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You know, so we're sleeping just like laying on a bed with a pillow, so make sure that he's safe and it's part of it. The the best system we had for co sleeping when we were doing it was um one of those like boppy pillow things where it's like sort of curved so it like keeps them mm-hmm. in one place before mm-hmm. they can roll over. Um, and then having that in between the two of us, sort of down a little bit by our legs, so then we we're not going to roll over onto him, and he's not mm-hmm. going to get anywhere because the sides of the pillow are keeping him where he is. Yeah, we try, we had a snuggle me, which is kind of this big sort of O-shaped pillow that's uh, pinched in the sides, right? And so that mm. way you can kind of put him in on like one of the corners. And that worked for a little bit, but then I think he woke up and realized that he wasn't touching somebody and like that was a problem. Mm. Yeah, so like we're doing the best we can and it's it's going, but it's got yeah. one of those things that like 
I love this, but I'm also excited for the next part. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you can break the co-sleeping a lot easier at three months. Was what I remember. Yeah, I think we're but we're about probably a month out from that. We'll be we'll be good. I'm sure. Yeah. One of the things that made it really easy for us was a a swing. They they got like those like auto rocking things. Oh yeah, we we got one of them. He never yeah. falls. He loves it, but he never falls asleep in it. He just kind of like sits and chills and hangs out. It's got like a little semi mobile kind of thing. It's got black and white little, you know, cushy uh-huh. things on it. So he loves staring yeah. at those. I mean, he's happy as a clam and but um he just won't fall asleep i think i don't know if he's stimulated or whatever by it but um well you'll get there and how did you get started playing D? that's a good question my dad uh taught my brother and i to play D. I must have been seven or eight and he was probably four or five and my uh, my uncle came over and the four of us sat down and we played keep on the borderlands which is this B to A, D, and D, you know, module at his big pink yeah, thing. That's a famous one. Yeah, man. Like we, we had that. And so it was, we were playing A, D, and D when I was a kid. And so, like, after that day, I wanted to play all the time. And unfortunately, we just like didn't have time or people, right? And so I, uh, I DM'd, I like picked up the Dungeon Master's Guide and I read that thing through and through over and over and over again and, and tried to convince my brother, brother to play as much as, you know, he would. And so, you know, played that until I was in about sixth or seventh grade and found out that my sister's history teacher, who was just at the same school, was also like the staff person on the gaming club who also loved AD&D and second edition. And so then on my lunch hours, I was allowed to leave the cafeteria to go play D&D with uh, my history teacher, which was sick. <laughs> Just you? Yeah, well, no, me and a couple other people, right? So we had, we had like, okay, yeah, I think yeah. he had like a group of six kids or whatever. Uh, it's very Stranger okay. Things kind of, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like in those days, whenever you rolled stats, you just rolled them straight all the way down. Like if you, before you chose your class or anything, you just rolled your six stats. Like I think it was strength, yeah. dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, charisma in that order. And then you got to decide yep. what your class was based on that. There was no modifiers for hit points. So like your wizards would just roll 1d4 plus whatever your con bonus was. And, like, that was it. And so, like, you'd have three hit points going into uh, <laughs> into level one. Yeah, no, I actually like that system for generating stats a lot because it, it feels like it gives more organic creation of characters. It's certainly nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, of course, it means that, like, if you have a particular idea for a character, you can't necessarily execute it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. If you don't, then it's a way to get the juices flowing for what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, you know, I picked that up, and then my buddies and I, who were all kind of part of the club, eventually we got into high school. We played uh, 3.5 for a little while, and then uh, I started playing Magic the Gathering competitively around the country, and then D&D kind of played. Uh, some went to the wayside uh, until... Oh, cool. Until I actually moved down to, to Raleigh again, and then one of my college buddies had a, a group going, and I picked up 5th edition again, and um, then the the first time DM there just like wasn't really feeling it, and so then I, that same buddy bought me the um, Ravnica book for 5e, as well as the, the DMG, uh, and he loaned me his, his player's handbook, or second copy of it, and he's like, why don't you, you know, just take a look at these, and then I pulled together some guys at work and come to find out that, you know, my buddies Kevin, Josh, Jake, and Adam all had be had been Dungeon Masters before, and so had I. And then we got one other buddy named Austin who had never played but turned out to be one of our best players. And then we ran a two-and-a-half-year Ravnica campaign 
which is great. Cool. Yeah. I I mean, I, I play Magic, but I can't say I really follow the lore that much. I'm not really familiar uh, with the Ravnica setting. It's just like a, ma- it's, I know it's it. a massive uh, city. Like, the whole plane is one big city, and so it's a lot of intrigue and politicking and that kind of stuff going on. Um, and it, it was very clear to the players that, like, no matter how powerful you were going to get, there was always, like, a bigger, badder thing just, like, around the corner, right? They've got these massive guild leaders, which are pretty much like walking deities, Um at all times i mean you could just go up and kind of talk to them if they're in the wrong neighborhood and get everything it, it was it was fun it was a good time it was a good time it uh a couple of people had played magic the gathering before so i, I definitely used some characters from cards um mm-hmm. to kind of help add some flavor but like even the the folks who had never played magic before i mean it, it didn't really matter they were playing D and that was the fun part yeah like if you don't care about it it's still a decent setting yeah yeah a lot of fun. Uh, so I guess that also answers one of my other questions, which is usually like, how did you get to be a DM? Yeah, yeah. Like I've always found myself as as um, I've always found myself having more fun as a DM. Um, I have a degree in musical theater, a, a bachelor's degree, and so mm-hmm. just the ability to play as many characters as you as you can, be the narrator and setting the scene, um, narrating combat, all that kind of stuff just sort of naturally came. And uh, I just found myself more engaged, you know, being a DM than a player. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, you get a lot more control and activity as a DM compared to a player where you have to wait for someone else's turn, whereas a DM, you're always the one that's responding to each of the players. So are you still playing in the Ravnica world, or are you, you doing something else now? Yeah, we um, we played for two and a half years and eventually got to level 16 from one, um, and then just kind of said that that was it. And one of the things that Ravnica doesn't necessarily offer itself to is a lot of deities, and so we didn't really play with, with many deities at all. I mean, like, I think we had a um, one cleric, but their deity was more of just, like, the idea of hope and uh, life sort of thing, rather than, like, any particular faced personification um yeah unless you're doing the guild leaders i think yeah the magic yeah. settings are usually pretty limited right there's not too many actual deities that, that grant power so what i did is we wanted to play in a a setting that used more of you know a, a religious setting where almost everybody kind of followed you know a god of sorts and so i i also through this first campaign sort of hodgepodge levels together like i very much planned out what i was going to do for level eight but i did that one with when the characters were level seven and i sort of just kind of let the story unfold as it was and eventually it was like pretty good but there's definitely some levels that i look back and i'm like yeah level 13 wasn't my best right or level eight wasn't that great but uh, uh-huh. there's some good moments throughout so what i did with this yeah. second setting is i kind of sat down and made like a a whole sort of through line story um, and actually, the very first thing that I kind of wrote down was what happens at the end of the campaign. Like, what is the pinnacle moment that we're all kind of moving towards? Um, and that's at like level sixteen. And so then I, I decided, well, like, what what ne- needs to happen right before that in order to make sense? And then what happens right before that? And then what happens right before that? And like, how did the characters get here? And how did the characters get here? And that got me all the way back to like level nine ish, level eight. So then I thought, I said, okay, so all this stuff is going to happen between levels 9 and 16. How can we start foreshadowing that at the beginning? Like, what happens at level 1? So then I went back to level 1, and I went 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 
And then there was this gap at like levels six, seven, and eight, which to this day is still not written. But what I'm going to do is tie in some character backstories. Like they're going to explore <laughs> the world based on the character backstories. No, that's good. That's really good. And so like levels one through four, which are very much like the, the, the early stages of every D&D campaign, foreshadowing sight in the scene, and that uh, well, they just hit level five here, and that was them, exp- like, we had, I forget what the trope is called, but it's essentially some guy that nobody believes, but he's actually right. Like, he's got the nail on the head, but nobody in the world believes him because he's kind of this crazy, senile old man. Uh-huh. And so, um, it's funny because... Four of my players did not believe him, but one of them is latched onto this like this conspiracy theorist idea, and like mm-hmm. is one hundred percent certain it is true, and is now looking for all the clues that they've already found or that they will find about like how the fact that that's going to be that's going to unravel, which is really exciting. So they're going to travel to um, one of the, the the druid sort of circle to see how that's helped and like the. The whole reason why he's left the Druid Circle to go on the adventure is going to be the reason why, like, the world is is sort of the way that it is, and um, all that's going to come to a head at level nine, when eventually they're going to have to start to kind of go on this uh, godly quest. Um, I was going to say that idea for like not knowing a, like not trusting a sage, um, comes from Cassandra from Greek mythology. Ah, yes, thank you. Yes, absolutely. She is, um, yeah, I, I knew that one. Ah, I knew that one too. That's okay. That's good. So it's it's interesting. You said like you designed backwards from like 16 to nine and then tried to fill the other like eight levels. And my reaction would have been, okay, let's start at level nine then because that's got all the pieces. Yeah, well, the thing about it was is that like once we got to nine, essentially what it is is that kind of kicks off the end game of the story, right? Like that. So in theory, it could be level 10 or 11 or 15. It doesn't really matter. But um, essentially what it is, is it it starts to kind of utilize each of the gods that I've kind of created in this pantheon um, as part of the storyline. And they kind of touch on most, if not all of them, in those seven levels or so. And so um, there's a a moon goddess that's kind of also the goddess of secrets um, and... um, the goddess of hope, right? Like this light in the darkness. And so the first kind of eight or nine levels are all about how the world is, is decaying and dying. And there's this sort of plague that's kind of taking over the world. And at level nine, they meet, they have the meeting at the top of a mountain at like this secret um, shrine to this goddess. And she says, she like opens this door um, or, or she tells them about a door that they can open if they kind of pass these trials and kind of like just sends them on their way. And um, that can happen really anywhere. Like that can happen in the storyline pretty much anywhere. All they have to do is just get to this this place. And so there really isn't anything in particular that has to happen right before it, which is where I kind of got stuck, I guess. Um, and so instead of just like, kind of ramming my head into the wall until it broke down, started kind of going in from the other end and seeing just like where the characters would naturally come from in order to kind of find that joining piece. Okay. Yeah. I guess another option, if you don't find something that fills like six through eight, besides the the backstory stuff, like if you run out of something, you can always just do a time skip too. There's another, I've used that occasionally. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I think because of our, um, just because of our group that I have, which I think, of course, is one of the biggest things about being a DM is tailoring your story, your world, and everything to your your players. Is, uh-huh. I mean, it, in the past, there's definitely been those games where I show up and I don't have anything planned, and my players kind of take over with like what they want to do or um, places that they want to go explore. And almost like a dream, we're kind of like exploring the world and writing the world as they're exploring it and at the same time, and things are just sort of happening. I can't tell you how many times I've had players be like, oh, I wonder if there's this thing behind the door. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Guess what's behind the door now, right? And it just kind of works out that way <laughs> because they have this penchant for wondering aloud, right? And uh, sort of helping write the world themselves you know some instead of asking do i see a shop that sells pies they say i'm going to go over to one of these local shops and search for pies right um and and that just sort of helps make things smoother and easier so it's uh it's quite the blessing having the playing group that i have well i mean dnd is a basically improv storytelling with yeah right like a mechanism for deciding action so like all you're doing is asking for suggestions from the audience after a fashion yeah i suppose right it's pretty much the same thing what's the what's the name of your campaign world i forgot to ask that um so the the realm of the gods comes from uh like the beginning of the end and of course the center it's spelled a-z-b-y-m-n right which of course kind of just (laughs) that's how you came up yeah yeah Yeah, right? A-Z-B-Y-M-N. Okay, a, so it's just an alphabet joke. Mm-hmm. All right. them is, is, is there. Um, and truly, I don't think I ever really sort of named the the mortal realm. I don't think anybody really ever asked. <laughs> so uh, it's all kind right. of a... So they just, just the, the Earth. Yeah, right. we call it the That's Earth, good. call it Faerun, whatever. Like, it's just sort of this, it's a stereotypical kind of realm. We never really named it. Um. Yeah, it's it was unimportant at the time, you know. <laughs> unimportant at the time. I love that, but it's just alpha and omega. But we're going to use the the English alphabet for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. So you've got the the gods and the the plague, which sound interesting. Which one of those do you want to talk about first? Let's start with the gods because the plague kind of comes after that as well. Okay. Um, and so the, the the pantheon that I created is um, it. I mean, as soon as we start to kind of go through some of these, it, it pulls from a lot of tropes from a lot of different. It's almost like a mixed bag of mythology, um, and some reference uh, Greek gods, some reference Nordic gods. I think there's even a couple references to like Egyptian gods. I've referenced um, mm-hmm. the gods of Critical Role, right? Like, you know, because this is just sort of our oh, okay. our own kind of personal um pantheon it just kind of it goes with without saying just yeah. some tropes are fun and others kind of just come from you and so yeah, steal what you want yeah right um so we we did a bit of a pantheon at the front and then they have these sort of anti-gods which are um like four titans i kind of think of them as like the greek titans but instead of you know tornadoes and volcanoes they're um sort of like the four horsemen kind of thing, but a little different. We'll get to those, I guess, towards the end. Um, but what I wanted, I wanted instead of like a Zeus or a Jupiter or, or um, an Odin type figure as a king, I wanted a, a woman leading. And so I made Menorah, who's this uh, sort of 
mother of gods, um, goddess of life and birth and dawn and growth and calm and home and hearth and just sort of this general warmth about it. And apparently I wrote her well enough that two of my five players kind of picked her as their their patron god, um, somebody that they, they worship. Uh, and it's really going to work out perfectly because uh, we get into the storyline in a bit, but um, she's sort of the main focus of like, the whole campaign. Um, gods in my setting don't die, per se, but um, or they can't... They don't in most settings. Yeah, well, the, here's the thing. Like, This is the whole point of the campaign, is the fact that they don't physically die, but they are, in this case, Minora, at this time, is dying. And um, okay. she's sick and elderly, but still doing what she she needs to in order to um, sort of survive. But these sort of little decaying pieces of her essence are leaving the realm of the gods, um, and they are sinking into the world. And they're starting to infect those without calmness and serenity, those with uh, hopelessness, or um, maybe those who are suffering from depression or these things, and they're starting to get physically ill from some of these um, mental struggles that they've been having. And then eventually in one night, uh, which is the opening of the setting, day one, level one, um, the characters experience some characters who are um, beloved elderly members of the town who are sick and are dying, but then instantly feel better. But later on that night, you come to find out that they have this sort of zombie-like appearance where they've lost their mind, but they're rabid and ravaging. Uh, and unfortunately, they had to slay their friends or these people that are, are kind of beloved amongst the town. Oh, they have these okay. green eyes and sort of uh, super strength and just this sort of decaying essence as from Menorah is sort of infecting these people uh, across the country. And it happens to, you know, every town in earshot uh, all in the same night. That's that's interesting. There's a lot of interesting things there. Um one of the things that I think this is just coincidence is the the Pathfinder second edition um, tutorial uh, scenario has a very similar plotline. But oh, does it? I've never played Pathfinder. Yeah, uh, it's it's like the, there's this like ritual that your town does, and you end up having to through the ritual like um, you figure out that like the all of the your friends and elderly people in the town have been like kidnapped by zombies oh or undead but sure skeletons in this case. yeah yeah oh, so there, there's some similarities it's not it's clearly not the same thing but, yeah yeah uh, for sure i thought it was interesting and so the the very first thing that i kind of wrote to um in the campaign is at level 16 uh one of the characters who's going to be um a fighter character in this case just happened to be the, the character is going to need to take a mystical sword that they're going to craft throughout the um, uh, throughout the campaign, and they're going to have to drive it through the heart of Minora, like as she lays in in bed sick. And what that does is it sort of releases her dying essence into this sort of new life and starts a whole new sort of realm of prosperity and safety amongst the thing. But it's this idea that a, a human needs to end up taking this mystical sword, going to the realm of the gods, and, like, slaying the god. Otherwise, the world will fall to pieces. Okay. A god can't do that because 
gods aren't allowed to do that? Yeah, um, yeah, I kind of just wrote it like a, a rule that said that it had to be a human to do it. You know, yeah, fake prophecy, whatever. Yeah, right. Like just kind of one of the rules of the world, I guess. So, uh, I mean, there's a couple things I wanted to unpack there. One of them is like I was talking about this in a, a previous episode of uh, like the pieces of a god spreading out throughout the the campaign setting is um, like that's called animism, where like everything is like a god. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very like malevolent. So that, that's an interesting idea. Um, can you? How did you come up with that? You know, it's really interesting. Um... I came up with the the piece first. I wanted a human character or a humanoid character to slay a god. But I wanted it in a way that wasn't selfish. I wanted it in a way that was actually going to probably be sad and painful for the character to do so. I wanted this tension for the player to think of like, am I really going to do this? Is this what they want? And I wanted that moment. Mm-hmm. And we'll see, depending on how like the rest of the campaign plays out, if that crafting is going to end up giving sort of the emotional response that I'm looking for. But this pinnacle moment in the entire campaign obviously has to be pretty powerful. And so, like, I'm hoping that when we get there, like, it, it is. It kind of, you know, causes players to emotionally respond. And so then I had to think, I mean, like, you know, why would they do that if it wasn't for personal gain, right? Like, why would a character kill a god if it wasn't for personal gain? Uh, or if it wasn't out of spite or anger or something like that? And you know, out of mercy, I guess, or because of need was sort of the next answer. And then it came up the idea, well, why would they need to kill them? Well, because the rule is that, like, gods can't kill them. A human needs to do so because of some prophecy or something. But then, like, why would they just kill them out of the blue? That doesn't make sense. They have to be sick or dying or something like that. And so then once I got to that nugget, the god is sick and dying. What sort of effect does a sick and dying god or goddess have on the world? Well, this is the goddess of life and birth and dawn and growth and uh, serenity and calm. And um, in theory, I mean, the myths are that she is the actual sun. You look up in the sky, you see the sun, you're looking at Menorah. And so I thought about doing like some sort of darkness, but then I thought that was a little heavy handed. And I figured that like, as soon as the whole world is plunged into darkness, maybe that means, you know, that the campaign fails. Maybe that's the fail case. So I needed something more subtle, right? I needed something that was something that, I mean, level one characters can see an effect, but also is something that is big enough to investigate for six, seven, eight levels before they actually figure out the, the jump start into like the end quest line. Right. And so then just like the idea that maybe the sickness isn't maintained or contained inside of her, you know, uh, like deity body and that it sort of starts to leak out into the world what have you know this is like the decaying portion of it and so therefore it's got to have some uh, malicious effect on the world I guess and give some more immediate threat too yeah for sure it says that this is happening now right and it's not some prophecy that you have to do eventually it's like this is a, a an issue that we have and so we need to solve this um, and so my characters have been very, pretty, pretty focused on the green-eyed menace, so they called it, as it's a, it's a big thing. So campaigns, I think they've gone, I think about two and a half weeks or so in the campaign to get up to level five. Uh, probably three weeks now. And um, they've got more questions than answers. Pretty fast. 
which is part of you know early campaigns. Yeah, but um, there's certainly the urgency is there, which is good. So I have one more question, like the the name Menorah. Um, so did you pick that to like reference the like Hanukkah, or is it uh, some sort of? You know, it actually more so came from the. Um, it was uh, just a, a quick reference to the. She's a god in the Critical Role campaign. The um, that Caduceus Clay goes to the Wild Mother. No, it's a. I don't know. She she's a similar sort of goddess of uh, the Wild Mother. There we go. The Wild Mother. Melora. Melora. And so obviously we couldn't use the exact same god. Um, and but it was it was similar enough, and so it just kind of. Yeah, it sounded good. It sounded like a good name. I guess I don't really know. Okay. All right. I was thinking it was like Minora or Minerva, not Malora, but okay. Yeah, I still see it similar. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. M I N O R A, which is a little bit farther away from like a Hanukkah menorah. Um, I guess it kind of works, right? I, I don't really know all the symbology behind a Hanukkah one, but. Uh, yeah, I was just like, is there any like nine candles or something like that that's going to, or eight? No, no, I wouldn't. Uh... I probably wouldn't use anything like that, mainly just because I'm not really up on all of the symbolism. And even though I don't think anybody in our group is Jewish, I just don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent in a way that could be construed as, as uh, negative, you know? Okay. Uh, that's interesting. Cause the, another thing I noticed was that the, like the guilty slaying of a God also sounds like you're sort of playing off of, Christian guilt, almost. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's, it's. I think it's this idea that um, it comes from the idea that slaying a god is a big deal, and there are really only a couple. I can think of a couple of um, reasons why you would want to do so, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to force upon my characters any sort of um, ambition or. Uh, glory or something along those lines mainly just because of the kind of players that we have mm -hmm. and so um it's really interesting in our in our ravnica campaign we used um the the card massacre girl the magic card massacre girl and i created massacre girl to be this like cr15 um essentially demon uh infested teenager who kind of goes on these rampages and doesn't really understand what she's doing but kind of just gives herself over to this sort of like inner demon and they had to stop her but come to find out one of the only ways that they could stop her is by killing her but in doing so the person who struck the final blow then became infected by the demon itself uh or um what do demons do they don't infect people they possess think, possess the demon and so, but there was, there was a big conflict within the group. And the same character who I think is going to get set up to slay the god was the one who ended up going in uh, to, like, her room. And instead of, like, talking to her as Massacre Girl, they just talked to her as the teenage girl that she was. And because she felt safe, like, the demon sort of subsided or she grew enough power to kind of, like, just speak as a human. And eventually she, like, begged him to to take her life and because she didn't want to be like this anymore. And then it was this really, I mean, really powerful moment to kind of 
be a part of. And, you know, everybody else was just kind of watching as it was just me and this one player. And uh, eventually he, like, had her look out the window and started narrating a sunrise to her as it was coming up. And then, like, you know, took uh, a mystical daiquiri hat and, like, plunged in the back of her <laughs> neck. And it was, like, really powerful stuff. And so... You know, we're kind of it treated her like Lenny from my a little bit, yeah. But like she was totally aware <laughs> of it, right? Instead of like just not knowing, like she she asked kind of for yeah, that thing. Yeah. But it was it was a really powerful moment, and it really sort of dawned on me like why we played D and D was that session. It's this it's this idea that not every session, not every game has to be this big, wild, uh, super cool game. You might not even have fun every game. But what you do is is D and D is cultivating a situation where these really powerful emotions and storylines can come through, um, and sometimes you just find a gold nugget. You know, like it's like panning for gold, and sometimes you turn up empty, but sometimes you find you strike gold and, and like you hit the jackpot. And so yeah, yeah. I'm trying to kind of cultivate that a little bit. So towards the end of the campaign. There's a little, there's a golden nugget at the end that I'm, I'm hoping is there. Um, but so instead of like trying to stumble upon them, I'm trying to almost uh, like really plant the seeds early and, and cultivate to that point. But I suppose you're right. We're kind of calling into some Christianity aspects to it. I guess I hadn't really considered it, but we are. Well, I mean, it's different because um, I forget his name. Long Nidus isn't. Christian, but he still understands that he's doing something wrong within the typical mythology. Yeah. It's not not quite the same thing, but there was some similarities enough that I thought that might have been a partial inspiration. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, maybe It probably was, honestly. I was raised Christian. I, I don't really currently consider myself Christian, but I'm very familiarized with the mythology, and so um, it wouldn't surprise me if that idea had come from somewhere, you know, within that all right, well, that's uh, that's gods in the plot of your campaign. Um, that's like one of 15 gods. <laughs> We're going to be here forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well... we'll... Here, uh, let, me, let, me, let me bring up one more sort of set of gods. There's a pair of gods that oh, I'm yeah. really excited about. And this, um, one of the things that I did with a lot of these gods is, um, you know, the dwarves have their own god. There's, there's a god of the forge, and then they're like um, the uh, sort of Yanti have a god. There's a snake god, exciting but mm-hmm. one that i'm really excited about was this idea that uh there are two gods one is the goddess of death whereas the other is the goddess of the underworld uh, one i named sylph s-y-l-f is the goddess of death which is this idea of the like the traveler the grim reaper type she doesn't look that way but just is the person who shows up as you're dying and then helps get you to the end the underworld and the other one is Nim, N-Y-M, and she's the, the goddess of the underworld who overlooks and oversees pretty um, Hades type, like is the person who kind of like lords over the underworld and keeps everybody safe there. And um, The lore is that these two goddesses were actually one goddess, Sylphnim, who traveled the world collecting lost souls to kind of keep them and travel with them. But as humanity and, you know, just humanoids expanded and grew... The job became too much for one individual. And so the lore is that she took her own scythe and split herself in two, uh, creating both Sylph and Nim. But in doing so, it sort of tore the, the realities from the main plane of existence in the underworld. And so because of that, there is danger if they ever were to meet. 
but because they're also the same sort of person, you know, in now in two bodies, there's this sort of longing um, and actual marriage between the two of them. And so uh, there's this longing for Sylph to bring gifts and uh, sort of usher these souls to Nim. And then, of course, there's always this longing from Nim to be on the other side and to be rejoined with her wife and self. And uh, just in general, I had one of my players sort of latch onto these two. Uh, he's officially a follower of Sylph um, in the game and is a, a warlock who is, I think he's an undead warlock that is kind of somebody who just wanders the world and is there for people's last rites, just always in the right place at the right time to give people last rites. And so sometimes in combat, he's the person who takes them from, you know, perfectly healthy to last rites. <laughs> but also sometimes he, he is more of a benevolent, shows up uh, to grant peace to people in their, in their dying moments. Um, and honestly, you know, I, I feel like there's so many different um, kind of inspirations for this sort of thing. I mean, you've seen all the time where people are talking about how life is giving gifts to death and it just takes 80 years to get there. Um, I don't really know exactly if there's a particular, you know, theology that, that likes that. You've also heard of different gods that split themselves in two. Um, and again, I don't know if there's any one particular place where I pulled it from, but it just really sort of, it's one of those things where I had this idea and it sort of formed itself as I was like writing it out, which is really nice. It's cool. I like it. Oh, and then, of course, there's also, as I kind of scroll down here towards the bottom, um, these four titans, uh, which I think are going to be showing up a lot more here in these levels six, seven, and eight as sort of the um, uh, sort of like the villains, I guess, of the campaign uh, and the followers of these titans. Um, they're called the bottomless, the hooded one, the flagellant, and the temptress, and they essentially represent the ideas of hunger, death, pain, and lust, um, sort of respectively. And so, you know, instead of like these um, tornadoes and volcanoes, it's more of the, the things that really frighten or affect humanoids um, in, in a typically really difficult setting. You know, these are things that okay. a lot of people struggle with. And I think that they're seeing this moment in history um, as the gods and Menorah particularly are weak. You know, they're at a weakened state. And so if they can kind of steer the uh, acts of humans and humanoids in general, then there's a possibility of taking out a god altogether and not having her come back. That sounds similar. So that's in fourth edition, they had gods. Um, and there was this other force of like, I think they were called primals. Yeah. Um, it sounds similar to that for like the what the Titans are in your campaign, where the, there's the sort of not quite divine, but on that level force that's malevolent and almost against creation itself. Yeah, I, I took some inspirations from um, obviously the Greek Titans in, in a way, right? They were kind of locked in this otherworldly bubble. Um, and, and then I also took some uh, critical role. They have their calamity and I don't know exactly what he calls them, but uh, betrayer gods, I think is what they're called. And again, they're not like this exactly, but they're very much in a a similar sort of sense. So there's scary anti-gods, right? 
not gods, not demons, just sort of this other sort of entity out in the world that are extremely powerful and, uh, you know, yeah, primordial. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yep. Cool. Yep. Things that are never going away. You can't kill these things, but they definitely um, are, are scary beyond belief. I mean, I forgot one of the initial questions I usually ask is for like a physical description of your world. Um, so what's it like physically for the area that the, the players are exploring? Yeah, so um, adventuring around it. It's interesting. We'll tie, we'll tie back to one of the gods here in a second. But um, it is it's a, a vast world that they're pretty much in kind of the southern part. It takes a lot, a lot of um, inspiration from just Faerun because that's what they have a lot of maps for and things like that. But um, we, we've got a large ocean to the, the west um, and then a uh, so number of different rolling hills and forests along the way, uh, a huge sort of glacial area in the north as well. Um, and then the entire eastern half of the map. So uh, in Faerun, they've got this big desert called Anorak, right, um, that is sort of in the center. And then there's some extra area to the, the right of that, east of that. Um, my Anorak kind of just continues on uh, without end. And the whole lore behind that was that one of the gods, which is the god of the harvest, um, was walking around on the earth in a massive sort of um, form. And because the, the harvest wasn't very good that year, um, humanoids and other creatures sort of rose up and slayed him on Earth, just his physical body. He's still alive and around um, up in uh, Asbim, which is the realm of the gods, but um, no god comes down to, to the, the world anymore. And his physical body is buried deep underneath that desert, and nothing will grow there you know, until the end of time sort of thing. So says the lore. Okay. So it's a very, um, I guess... You know, it's a pretty standard kind of world that has a bunch of different biomes and different areas to allow for all kinds of different, um, you know, monsters and peoples and gods of different kinds. Um, there's a big floating city, uh, which is typically it's uh, populated by dragon, dragonborn and draconoids, those kinds of things, because it's a, a floating city is kind of also the... Um, it's the shrine towards Zraenor, which is the dragon god, and he's an emerald dragon god. And so he's kind of like the god of the sky. Oh. I think there's anything else. Emerald seems like a strange choice for a gem for a lead dragon and a dragon of the sky to me. Yeah, um, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that uh, I thought sort of made him a little bit different. You know, one of the one of the things a lot you'll notice kind of if we were to go through each of these gods is they're pretty standard for tropes uh, with one sort of like twist. Like we'll just well, something that makes them a little bit different. Um, kind of make them my own, I guess. And I, there's no oh. particular reason why it had to be Emerald. It could have been really anything. I, I think really what it kind of came down to was that the um, his bands had just come out recently when I was creating this and, you know, the the gem dragonborn were recent you know in my mind and particularly kind of latched onto the emerald dragons it's just something i thought was fun okay yeah i haven't, I haven't read that yet but i i do remember the gem dragons from third edition so ah yeah yeah they were neat then i actually used one of them in my first adventure all right yeah okay so it's just sort of like your typical kind of 
uh, you said it's based off of Furu, and so it's got a lot of Western um, European themes to it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty traditional when it kind of comes to D and D settings. You know, um, I find myself, uh, you know, as somebody who's got like a a small background in accents and and voice acting and that kind of stuff, it really helps to kind of standardize a lot of that stuff. So I find my a lot of my elves are Irish and all of my dwarves are Scottish and or, or similar sort of lilts. Um, Dragonborns in my campaign happen to have some Eastern European Russian accent and um, okay, yeah. I mean, just kind of oh, I've I've got I, I steal over the Furbolg idea from Critical Role. I quite like the the bovine aspect to them um, in particular. I come from Wisconsin, right? So I can do that kind of Canadian. Uh, up north oh, accent yeah. pretty well and so okay. so that that finds themselves over and this is some of my favorites I, I use them pretty sparingly particularly right now there's a apothecary named phoebes uh who's i mean very similar to kind of a pumat soul type that i just love he's, he's the best okay cool for the the map are you actually just using the faroon map or are you um just sort of something that's like Anorak and the West. I pulled a Sword Coast map, and then you know, they use that as like a world map with all of the names pulled off of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I use Foundry VTT as a virtual tabletop because we play virtually. And what I did is I, I renamed almost every single um, like city and hills and all that kind of stuff on there. And I, I hide them on the map so that way only I can see them as a dungeon master. And as they continue to explore uh, the world, I toggle them on so the map kind of continues to fill itself in as they learn about different places. Um, but, I mean, the physical map itself is still, it's a favorite map. I think it comes from uh, Order of the Dragon Queen or something like that. Yeah, yeah that doesn't work from. There's so many. It's all the same thing, between. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it depends on the edition because the fourth edition messed up the geography a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I find myself with a lot of fifth edition sort of um, resources. Uh, I don't. We haven't really touched on it yet, but I've actually uh, since COVID started, I was I've been playing D and D semi professionally. I've been leading the campaigns of all different kinds. This is the one we're talking about today. Is my personal campaign with my friends, but. Uh, there was a point in time in early 2021 where I was leading eight different campaigns a week, um, uh, and most of my players were were paying to be there, and so that's that's busy. So that's like one every night plus like three on Saturday. Or I was something. running. Uh, I didn't have any on Tuesdays for whatever reason. That wasn't the day. But Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, and then I had a, I had a 40 hour weekday job as well. <laughs> oh god yeah we we've scaled that back quite a bit that was about as high as, as yeah high, but, um, yeah i was guessing that having the the kid would yeah the newborn too, we're actually that we're down to zero games right now even my personal games on a hiatus right now with the newborn but i think as we kind of turn the the uh new year in 2023 and get him kind of at three four months we might be able to find some time to to start getting these things back in in play yeah, I think I took about a two month break when I had my first kid. But with the with the second, I, I was more into like I knew what to do and what I could handle. Yeah, so I like, think it was just it kind of happened to work out that our our two months ends like right now, and now we're moving into the holidays where I normally would take a little bit of a break anyway, like all the all the yeah, Christian holidays that are coming up here soon anyway. So it's a you know we'll we'll just kind of take that extra month and 
take it easy. Ease back into it. So what what about the races for your campaign? Races for our campaign. Um Yeah, so it sounded like you had like um racial deities with the, the dragonborn one and the, the dwarven one. Yeah, I, the standards really come through with, uh, you know, we've got a, a drow god and an elf god. We've also got uh, dragonborn. Um, there's there's a snake-headed god, which is kind of like an uh, ode to e- Egyptian lore, but also helps with the yanti, right? Um, they're, they're, they haven't really played any roles in the campaign quite yet. Um, I'm actually pretty open to race. You know, it's one of the things that as... I was running a lot of public games. People wanted to come in and they wanted to play like, you know, a tabaxi and there really weren't any other tabaxi in the world, but, or they wanted to play something from the Feywild and there really wasn't anything else there. But like, you know, as people who are coming in and paying money to play, I'm not going to tell them, no, you can't play this kind of character. And so in those campaigns, I suspended a lot of disbelief when it comes to like race or player characters. And so in this one, I sort of kind of took everything that I had done in other games and just sort of allowed it to be. And because the world is so big, um, you know, there's just different areas where all these different sorts of races can, can abide. Um, none of my players really took anything wild. Um, we've got a drow. That's our undead warlock. We've got two humans. I think the, the most wild thing we have is a furbolg. It's a furbolg druid, but I mean, that's not really, Super out of the ordinary. Um, yeah. And so uh, I think the craziest thing that they've sort of impacted was a, a whole town run by uh, gnomes and dwarves. And of course, there's an ancient feud on this small binding town of gnomes and dwarves. And they both think that the other is, is completely um, like cheats them out of everything. And is this ages, ages old feud between the two. But I'm kind of free game when it comes to races, you know, like anything that shows up in the in any of the books, let's do it. I mean, I don't really have any Leonins or uh, Tortles specifically lined up, but they certainly it's not that they couldn't happen. Okay, so does that mean that there aren't really any like, you know, like the typical D&D fantasy is that like, okay, you you get a group of adventurers together and then you go and kill some orcs because they all serve. Mordor, or yeah, whatever, right. You know the orcs are usually evil. So is that something that's not the 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 truth in your? Oh, certainly not. No, no, no. Um, you know, individuals are in the first another sort of homage to Critical Role in the first couple of levels. They went and fought a bunch of gnolls in a cave because the gnolls had also been infected by sort of these decaying um, portions. Um, they had all sort of been infected by these sort of decaying portions of menorah that had been. Um, moved out of the realm of the gods, and so then the, they had to like go through the, the cave and kill some gnolls and that kind of stuff. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that all gnolls are bad, right? But I think that each player kind of comes in with these biases or uh, biases that goblins are bad or, or orcs are bad or whatever. And I really try to challenge most players, particularly in my public games, I really try to challenge that idea that all goblins are cannon fodder, evil characters. Um, particularly if they are a playable race. I don't I don't go nearly as hard for the non-playable races, but like if they're a playable race in 5e, in my opinion, it's all about the individual rather than the the sort of racial when it comes to what is good or who is bad kind of thing. I really want to challenge okay. that idea. All right. Yeah, that's getting to be more common um that I've seen. 
maybe it's my time with Magic the Gathering, right? Because as you know, we played on Ravnica for two and a half years, and one of the main races is goblins, right? Like goblins. Oh, that's a very point, much yeah. in uh, like World of Warcraft type. Like, yeah, they're certainly eccentric and probably chaotic, but that certainly doesn't make them evil or bad. They're just selfish, typically, or you know, they like to push the button. They're they don't have high impulse control. They usually find themselves on the wrong side of the law, but that doesn't mean that they all are, right? That doesn't mean they're they're bad or evil or malicious. That just means that they usually find themselves um, disenfranchised, and a lot of the times, when those people find themselves disenfranchised, they find themselves you know, stealing or, or doing what they have to survive or finding their paycheck, getting their food on their table by whatever means. But, you know, also in Ravnica, they're quite important to the Is It League, which is the League of Inventors, right? Because they come up with these wild and crazy ideas and they don't stop to ask, mm -hmm. should we? They just do it because it would be fun, interesting, or you can learn something new, right? This impulse control isn't there. And that sort of fervent... Um, inventorship and, and research I think I really really admire about goblins in particular and so almost all of my goblins in all my campaigns have that similar sort of quality okay yeah so would you say that like there I guess this is a way of explaining it is like the typical D&D &D fantasy has black and white racism and I guess your campaign still has racism with like goblins having like a place that uh, and stereotypes, but they're not like all evil XP treasure bags. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I I really kind of struggle with the idea that it's still racism um, because that's kind of one of the things I really try to break the mold on. But um, it certainly has this idea of stereotypical, right? And like a lot of goblins find themselves in similar categories. Um, well, I, I mean, part of it is that I mean, racism in the real world there isn't nearly enough genetic differences to def to justify it but in D, D, you have like there are actual mechanical differences sure, yeah yeah you've got races. the idea of goliaths being eight feet tall and goblins being two or three you know like right. that that significantly impacts just like what they can do and i suppose where they find themselves yeah okay a similar vein like having a a society that doesn't have sexism isn't really possible because there are functional differences between the sexes. It's more about just having one that's equal and and how yeah. they're treated and what they can achieve. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just the idea that uh, to each finding their own place and celebrating those places and celebrating the positives and what they're good at, rather than trying to drive differences in the idea that like one is better than the other. Okay, gotcha. So I guess my my next question is uh, this is something I, I think might feature a lot in a cartoon show is because you, you want to have like some faceless evil villain. Do you use a lot of undead as your villains? Uh, no, not traditionally. Uh, I did in this case just uh, because okay. like they're very easy stat blocks to throw against level one characters without making sure that your character will die, right? Like, I don't want to kill my players at yeah, level one. And so like a zombie is a pretty easy thing to do. Um, I find myself, if I ever need a sort of a faceless undead creature, particularly at higher levels, is there are these characters i think they're called like the lost or the wandering or something like that um and they are nightmare fuel in the monster manual um and they're very powerful things too they're sort of these aberration um and they all have this sort of they all seem to be like humanoid sort of appearances but then they also come from this idea that each one is you know hungry or slothful or or um angry or whatever vengeant 
kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I want to talk a little about like the professional DMing you were saying you're doing. Were, were you you still using this campaign setting for that, or was it um, you know, were you doing individual things for them? How, how was that? So working? when I first started, I was doing this idea where I would uh, I was I was running a Ravnik campaign. I wanted to make some make myself different, right, than all of the other professionals on the on the website that I was using. Um, uh -huh. And so I was doing a Ravnica campaign and kind of just being a Ravnica um specialist and then i found like after running two three four campaigns on ravnica um it just like i wanted to do other things although the world is wonderful it doesn't really allow for that that long distance traveling time i was gonna say it sounds like you were trying to get to 10 so you could have one for each of the yeah kids. right um and so like we got to the point where i just i wanted to do a, a like a larger traveling campaign i wanted to do right um Something where, like, if you go to a town and, like, the group sort of, like, mucks up the town and then they leave, like, it's just as is tradition in D&D, &D, it didn't kind of screw over everything else. And, like, in Ravnica, when you do that, like, everything is so interconnected that it, uh, it there's, there's ramifications everywhere. Whereas in, in, like, your traditional sort of setting, so long as you never go back to that town and, like, word doesn't spread too far, you'll be okay. Yeah, I can see how that's a bit more of audience uh, gratification if there's fewer negative consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, I certainly are negative consequences, right? Like, some of my campaigns have been, like, we've done all kinds of jail heists to get people out of jail because of that kind of thing. Or I've even had a player retire oh, yeah. a character because they got sentenced to two years in prison and they just picked up a different character because okay. they wanted to. Um, but in general, there's there's less of that in in a standard sort of campaign. And then, of course, I've also, like... Had some people say that they wanted to just run the books. Like, I've run uh, Curse of Strahd twice, Storm King's Thunder twice, Horde of the Dragon Queen three times. I've run um, Wild Beyond the Witchlight when that came out, um, all in a public professional setting. And so, like, as you just continue to garner these extra resources and play in sort of these other sort of campaigns, it just sort of solidifies the general Faerunish world um, as you sort of explore all these different campaign settings. Which is neat. Cool. And so eventually what I found myself doing is I got to some of those like really big weeks. Um, I stopped doing homebrew campaigns. I shouldn't say that. I, I offered them, but I offered them at a significantly higher pricing point because uh, okay. it just took more time. Right. And so I found that I was able to be successful just running books um, and the modules that D&D &D &D was putting out mainly because they were also coming out fast. Uh, I mean, like, D&D over the last couple of years has really put out a lot of 5e content. And so it was really easy to yeah. get people to say, oh, you want to try the new book? Like, let's do that. And it takes 10 to 12 months for that one group to do that uh, for a 12-level campaign or whatever. And so then by that time, you know, a new book came out. I had one, yeah. I had one couple. They, were, they weren't, you know, they didn't know each other when they started, but they both signed up for... My very first starter campaign that I had done specifically aimed at people who had never played before. Um, and they played through Lost Minds of Fandelver. And then after level four, they wanted to keep going. And so they played, they jumped into Curse of Strahd, right? And uh, four of the five people who had started with Lost Minds moved on to Curse of Strahd. And then eventually we went all the way through the end of Curse of Strahd. And then they finished that. And then two people started a second campaign where they played um, Storm King's Thunder. 
after that as well. And so like they've been playing with me for two and a half years now, three campaigns, like four characters, you know, each of them, whatever. It's it's been crazy. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and they're both great players now. I'm really proud of them both because I remember they both kind of came in saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know what the stuff is. The one guy wanted to be uh he wanted to be Legolas exactly. And I'm like, well, you know, we can we can be a ranger and that kind of stuff, and this is what it looks like. And eventually we kind of moved yeah. away from that. And it, you know, he he always finds himself going back to some sort of archer type character. Um, you know, bless his heart. But he's uh he's a he's a good they're both great role players now as well. They really have found something that they enjoy you know, i've been doing it for a couple of years and i just remember them starting off not knowing anything about dnd it's really nice that's pretty cool and i uh, i wouldn't say there's anything wrong with having a particular character type that you like playing and want to yeah unless they're rogues or monks get those people out of here So you've always just done uh, 5th edition for the professional stuff? On the pro scene, yeah. And I, I've offered other things. And I've had a couple of individual people who have sort of been like, hey, I want to do a one-shot of this or that. Um, the thing about it is all of the digital... So all, all of the professional things find themselves on digital platforms because it's so much easier to take a person from Texas, a person from... I've had a couple people from the UK. I've had some people from... I had one person stationed in Japan. Um, he's a, a US citizen wow. stationed in Japan with the military. Uh, oh, yeah. and so like when you get all these people from around the world most people just want to play the more, the more recent things and also I found that there's two kinds of people who want to typically play um, with a professional DM and one of them is people who've never played before they don't know what they're doing they want some guidance they want this sort of professional experience rather than trying to figure out with, with their friends or the other group is, uh, is somebody who has played for years you know, they've played for 20 years or they know all the rules of fifth edition and they want to really sort of stretch the boundaries of their character creation, um, of their play style. They really want to, maybe they've never played one of the books. They've always wanted to play Storm King's Thunder and they haven't had a, a group to play that or they've always wanted to play Curse of Strahd and they've never found a group to play it and want to come like play through that uh, sort of thing. And in both situations, most of those people, they want to learn, or they want to play with what is familiar to them. Um, and honestly, I think as far as onboarding is concerned, fifth edition is, is about as easy as it gets You kind of sit down, roll some dice and just like play the game. Yeah. And I can see just it being popular, being a reason to have more of that when you're doing a paid service. Yeah. So I certainly would welcome going all the way back to AD and D the FACO times and, um, all that kind of stuff, but, uh, it just. I guess it's more so as a nostalgic kind of factor to me rather than I think it being any sort of superior game system. Yeah, I, I for one, would not like to go back to that. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I would if you paid me. I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't choose to do it. <laughs> but like, you know, at the end of the day, if you're offering a paid service, you do what the kind of customer wants, right? So long as it's within, yeah. you know, reason. And that to me is within reason enough. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you know the system, it's been long enough that I don't, Oh, I'd have to brush up. I'd have to brush up. It's been, you know, I read that book enough times. I'm sure it's rolling around in my brain somewhere, but I probably couldn't answer too much about it now. Yeah, I started playing right when they transitioned to third edition. So I did a few sessions in second and then picked up third. Don't think I ever read the second edition book. <laughs> uh, 
Man, I think we hit through all the, the usual points that I want to get to in an interview. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't had a chance to get to yet? Oh, man. Um, no, no, that's about it. I mean, I, I find just uh, that I'm in, obviously, the, the podcast Discord uh, under the name Draconis. If anybody wants to ask questions about my campaign setting, professional DMing, uh, just in general, my history. I'm always here. Happy to talk. Cool. Yeah. Um, and if anyone's got, uh, do you have any advice that you want to give? Any other DMs? Sure, sure. Um, first off, obviously, the, the number one piece of advice I can only give to every DM ever is just have fun, right? Obviously, this is a game, and obviously, there's lots of work, and there's a lot of, of um, art that we put into this sort of game to make the, the campaign settings that we do. But like, remember, at the end of the day, it's about having fun, uh, either with your friends or with strangers and making friends and that kind of thing. But um, there's, a, there's a pretty severe balance that you have to hit with uh, sort of adapting to your players and making sure that you adapt your setting and your world to your players. Also making sure that you're sort of true to yourself and you do the same things that you want to do because if you continuously sort of find yourself uh, giving in and doing what your players want you to do at all times, you may find yourself lo losing your way. So having a plan, sort of sticking to it and being flexible within that plan makes everything that much easier. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's um, that's some good advice. That's definitely something that's in the DMG as well with like trying to saying like start small. Oh, yeah, that same idea for sure. Uh, like you can expand the sandbox that your players get to play in as you go through the campaign so that like the events are getting grander and then your ability to juggle different pathways and different things gets bigger as you get more experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. All right, cool. Well, thanks, Bob, or uh, Draconis on the Discord. Um, this is good talking. Of course, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, man.